Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know you can join us every day via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is NextTrackCast, and we also keep all of our stuff at thenexttrack.com, so be sure to check that out. This is episode number 121. Today we have with us Roy Avon who is the founder and editor of The Prague Report. He also spent some time uh, in the music industry, and he's just come out with a book, which we're going to talk about today. Roy, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to meet you. You too, guys. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Roy, you've just recently written a very wonderful book called Essential Modern Progressive Rock Albums, and it covers records from 1990 to 2016. Now, We've covered progressive rock on the show several times. We've had Dave Weigel. We've had Jerry Ewing, the editor of Prog Magazine in the UK that I think you write for sometimes. We had Theo Travis a few weeks ago, who has played with Robert Fripp and is in Soft Machine. I think it's fair to say that other than The Grateful Dead, progressive rock is the genre that we have covered the most on this show. <laughs> Good thing. You're a generation younger than us, almost. At least I can tell that by looking at your face. Doug and I were on the front lines when prog rock was born back in the 70s. We had the long hair and the band t-shirts, and we saw all the big bands back in the day. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, particularly when we talked to Jerry Ewing, you know, prog rock had a short life, arguably, what, 1967, 69, and then it sort of died of bombast in 1978 or so. And, and then it came back. And the dates that you cover in your book, 1990 to 2016, is that the rebirth of prog rock in the early 90s? That's what many people would consider actually the third wave is, is what a lot of people call it. The, there was a period in the 80s that where it was largely more popular in the UK and in Europe. Uh, you know, Marillion was, was, a, was a big band around that at the time. And you still had Genesis and Yes, but they were doing more of a pop thing. Uh, you had bands like IQ and uh, all these sort of bands that were, you know, creating a progressive rock movement. But in the U.S., it was dead. Dead as anything. Yeah, disco came yeah. and punk came and MTV came. Yeah. And because if you remember, when MTV came, was that 82, I think, 81? You still didn't have non-public radio in the U.K., let alone videos on TV. So the music landscape was so different that in the States, I think things were changing a lot faster in the States. At the same time, in the UK, you had all this indie music stuff, you know, the factory records, rough trade, things like that. So I guess prog rock was just crawled under a rock for a while until yeah. it came out again in the UK. I don't think it, it opted to crawl under a rock. I think it was actually buried in a landslide. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's funny, it's probably generous to even put the, the start date at 1990, because I'm not sure much of the early 90s that I cover in the book, when we were living it at the time, we even thought of it as prog rock. You almost looked back later on and said, oh, it kind of, this, this fit, and, and it was a precursor to what we're all listening to now. Um, but, uh, you know, Queensryche Empire and Fate's Warning and, and things like that, they were at the time pretty much just called metal. Yeah, Th that was one thing I wanted to know. And, and having gone through the heyday of prog rock, I'm trying to figure out why did progressive rock and heavy metal get together and have a baby? That's a good, uh, that's a good question. I think uh, Queensryche and, and, and Fate's Warning just had a different mindset of writing. And if you, you speak to any of the members now at the time, for example, Jim Matthews from, from Fate's Warning, when they were writing A Pleasant Shade of Grey, his blueprint for that was thick as a brick. 
that's what he was trying to write. So I'm not they weren't necessarily trying to be prog rock bands, but they came from that, you know, that sort of mindset, that sort of mindset, not, right, not the same exactly. kind of music, but the same kind of conception of how to create music. Yeah. Now, Dream yeah. Theater was blatantly trying to bridge Yes with Metallica. That those were their influences, and that's really a, a, a more reliable starting point. They don't pretend that they're not influenced by first wave prog rock. No, they don't. You know, it's. I mean, it, to a, a person who's not familiar with with the with modern prog rock, you'd listen to it and say, "But that just all sounds like early Genesis." Or actually, the way Kirk and I were discussing it earlier is if if this, these people grew up on an island and they only had seven prog rock albums. And that's the only music they knew. But blues music is like that, too. Blues music follows a very strict form, and it's how it's interpreted, and it's the nuance of blues. And I think that's what the what's going on here, is they found very interesting elements that could still be experimented with and picked up and ran with it. And that's that's how I see modern prog rock, is, you know, the, there's, a, there's a foundational form, and then let's see what grows from there. Well, back when, when Dream Theater was starting... Some of them, the guys were like Mark Portnoy, for example, was a prog rock fan, you know, growing up. And some of the members in the band weren't familiar with Genesis and came from liking Metallica. So, or, or if they were familiar with Genesis, they were familiar with the Genesis of that period in the air tonight and that stuff. Yeah. So, so the combined influences became Dream Theater. Dream Theater then invited people. They were they did cover albums and they introduced a lot of fans like myself two older albums of yes and and those things and really were a big yeah, they were a big band at the time they had a gold record in 1992 in the middle of the grunge era that's significant so it was just the right time they snuck in there right enough to really get an audience and and start to build something and that allowed a lot of other bands to to sort of follow in their path and and it became what it is now now what's interesting to me now is that prog rock to me has just become almost the rock music of today. Because if you really look at general regular rock, it's either metal or it's it's sort of really nothing. And right now, if you look at all the stuff that there's a couple of record labels, K-Scope and uh, Inside Out Music, those are the two main progressive rock labels. If you listen to some of the stuff that they're putting out, the, not all of it is Yes and Genesis influence. There's a lot that is just interesting. That's it. it. The the key word behind it is interesting. It can be no solos at all, but eight minutes of ambient music and it's on a prog rock label. It, it sort of covers the gamut and it's allowed bands that would not have a home now on an Atlantic Records or Warner Brothers Records to say, hey, we can do whatever we want. We'll just call ourselves prog rock because now it's actually not a, a bad label. It gives you an audience. And yeah, and that audience. What's cool about that audience is they're open to a lot of different styles of music. It's interesting that you mentioned Dream Theater. So I've made a, a bunch of notes as I've been listening to this music. I listened to Octavarium, and so that's one of their earliest things. That's more than twenty-five years old when you think about it. That that clearly it opens sort of like King Crimson. It's got a flute in it, and it's clearly. Influenced by Supper's Ready, there are even bits with the same sort of organ or the same sort of rhythm changes. But as Doug said, it's like the blues. It's someone else interpreting the same sort of concept. And it is, of the stuff I've listened to, that is one of the more melodically advanced tracks that, that I've heard. You know, you, you listen to um, Thick as a Brick and you hear Ian Anderson say, oh, it was just a, 
you know, a joke to be sarcastic. But excuse me, Ian, that is one of the most sophisticated musical pieces of the early 1970s. The way the themes come and go, the way the transitions are, the arrangements and all that. There's a lot of musicianship that goes beyond the, as Doug was saying earlier, the guitar, you know, in in sort of in unison type stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, look, the, and that album has stood the test of time because of that. And maybe at the time, that's where he thought he was going with it. But it, it's it's lasted. It's a, considered one of the all time classic uh, concept albums today. I'm going to put links in the show notes to a couple of playlists. You've got a big Spotify playlist that goes along with your book. And I found a a 24-hour playlist on Apple Music with 101 tracks. And one thing I noticed is that there are dozens of 20 to 30-minute tracks. Now, prog rock died in the 70s in part because of that. I, I guess people have a different palette now that we're, as you said, third wave progressive rock. Well, again, it goes back to, you know, I've, I've always had a theory behind the whole rock movement and how it's changed over the last 25 years and that, in the tw- 2000s, the early aughts, I guess we'll call it, um, rock music for regular radio became really generic and dumbed down. I mean, it was brutally awful on, on what was going on on radio. And to me, that's what killed rock music. They, they thought that that's what people wanted. And it just got more boring and more boring and more boring to the point where no one wanted to hear it. And so now if you want to hear rock music, you get the Eagles and... I don't know what else is on the classic rock station. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing against the Eagles, but still. No, listen. People want what is good and original, and it can have a guitar solo. It can have an extra bit. It, it can be anything as long as it's good and interesting. I just went to see. This is maybe not applicable, but just in a general view of rock music being interesting, I just went to see Journey and Def Leppard um, uh, the other day, and. I was blown away. It was in a 20,000-seat arena, sold out, like it was 1987 or something. It was insane. You mean like it was 1977, <laughs> almost. <laughs> so, you know what? I, and, I was, and I said, you know what? These are bands that they, they had their own sound. They, did, they were unique at the time. And it turned out to be, look, this is good music. And people tried to kind of throw it away in the 90s. But it, it you know, it lived on. And so I think it's, I think that continues with what's going on with prog music now is that these bands realized okay we're not getting on the radio there's no mtv we're gonna do what we want and i think that's true with any genre if you do it authentically if you do it artistically to what you want and you're passionate about it and it's real then a 25 minute song will sound great to someone and it and it won't sound pretentious yeah because as you say they're not they know they're not going to get radio play so it doesn't matter they're allowed to extend their music well that's what the original prog rockers did too they never imagined that they would get on the radio so why not do a full side why not do a concept well but they did get on the radio and they knew that they were and and when by the time pink floyd did wish you were here they were on the radio all the time so you know shine on your crazy diamond what is it like eight ten minutes for each of the parts they knew that wasn't going to all get on the radio, so they had money. So that would get on the radio, or wish you were here. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. Journey and Def Leppard, I would not have imagined them on the same billing back in the day. They've been touring. In fact, I think they were just here in Boston a couple of weeks ago. So what's happening in prog rock is you've got a combination of two types of things. You've got these, for want of a better word, old bands who are still touring after 50 years. And then you've got these newer bands. If the old bands can play in a 20,000-seat arena, Journey and Def Leppard, it's more because of people our age 
who are able to go back and relive our youth. But what sort of venues are these newer bands playing in? Are any of them arena-sized bands? Uh, well, Dream Theater can be in some markets in the States um, or the big theater, big theater-sized ones. Um, right. So they're doing well. Overseas, they can play big festivals. You know, they, they, they're doing well. Marillion and overseas does really big, Royal Albert Hall, that kind of stuff. Um and Steve Hackett's doing really well with his Genesis Revisited tour, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Anyone should see that. Uh, the newer bands in the States is starting to get a little better. They're playing the the lo- mid to large clubs. Um, you know, a band like Haken that I cover a lot of my book is a band that's just celebrating 10 years, follows in the style of Dream Theater. And they just they're doing a headlining tour with a couple of other prog bands and in a mid-level size club. So what, 1,000 seats? Yeah, maybe, between yeah. 750 to 1,000, which is great. And uh, Stephen Wilson did two sold-out shows at the Best Buy Theater in New York on a, on a big headlining tour. The Best Buy Theater? It was... See, uh, that, that's how long I've been away from New York. There was actually a Best Buy Theater? Theater? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be called something else. It should, it used, they, they changed the name. <laughs> so so he's doing really well. Uh, you know, there's there's select ones. Some some can't tour here for, you know, for obvious yeah. reasons. But uh, just the travel expense makes it prohibitive. If you're a, sure. a UK band and you're only going to play to 500 seaters here, maybe it just financially wouldn't, wouldn't really work. But... um. But yeah, I mean, the Neil Morse band did a, a, a decent headlining tour in the U.S. and then went overseas and played 25 dates. And so, yeah, that, it's it's better. Is it kind of like the jam band scene? In terms of... Uh, Audience engagement? I would say that's uh, relatable, sure, yeah. So what's preventing them from breaking out and getting bigger, any of these bands? How, how about pick three bands that you really like that you talk about in your book and tell us a little, a little bit about them and... What's preventing them from hitting the next level in terms of audience appreciation? Well, uh, I got a bit. Okay, we'll go back to Haken because I'm a big fan of them, and they have a new album coming out in October called Vector, which is going to be their fifth album. And I've heard it, and it's phenomenal. Uh, that's a band that has really just grown into a spectacular band. And uh, again, a little bit more on the prog metal side, but very melodic. Dream Theater is the closest uh, style. In fact, when Portnoy, uh, a couple years ago, or a year ago, toured for his 50th birthday. He did a Dream Theater tour where he played Dream Theater songs uh, called The Shattered Fortress and p- selected a band to be the band for him because he's not in, in Dream Theater anymore. Essentially, he had Haken be his his band. So And he just swapped out the drummer, which just for fun, because he's friends with them and it all worked out. But that shows you the, how close that sort of musicality right. is. But um, look, I think that that is a band that is missing. There's still that radio airplay, you know, youthful audience breakthrough that they have to have. And they're getting close. But does does radio airplay make that much of a difference? Because on on the radio, you're going to get your sort of Taylor Swift pop and you're going to get your hip hop. Is there even any room for anything else today? Well, I think that you have Sirius XM, which is a big one. Uh, their their rock stations. You have playlists. That's the big one now. Spotify playlists are where labels go to. Yeah, but S- SiriusXM is is the kind of thing that you choose your channel. So 
you're going to choose the, I don't know, Steve Miller Band channel because you want to listen to Steve Miller Band every day on your commute. You're not going to hear anything else on one of those channels. Do they, do they have a prog rock channel? They do not. And that's ah. something I've been pushing for like crazy. Yes. And I'm, I'm trying to actually lead a movement to get one to happen because uh, I think that would be something people would be interested in. That's actually surprising. They don't even have a, the semblance of recognition for it. I mean, well, I would think that they do pretty well with it. Yeah. Well, I think that, look, I think that there's a tiny, almost education of rock audiences that maybe needs to happen in the States. Now, I'm not the one to claim to know how exactly to do that <laughs> across the country. But, you know, if you look, for example, on iTunes, when you download a, 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 an album by Dream Theater, they're labeled as metal or, you know, yeah. you, yeah, that kind of thing. So prog isn't even a label on iTunes. So I think it that's sort of a little bit of it. It it if that were to happen and you had a prog channel on Sirius and you had, you know, a couple more things sort of happen, maybe that would help break the door open a little bit and and give these these bands a name. But but look, a lot of it goes down to the thing that always was. Put a record, tour, put out another record and tour to bigger audiences and continue the process. If you follow again, like Haken, what's what, what they've been doing, they used to come here and open for bands and now they're headlining a tour and maybe in their next album, it'll be bigger venues. And it just takes time to work it. Yeah. We've, we've talked many times on the show about how music is so fragmented that there are so many genres and subgenres, And I guess it makes it a lot more difficult for people to discover new music if they're listening to one genre they're listening to rock and it's sort of classic rock how does the venn diagram overlap is it at music festivals do, do the prog rock bands play festivals with other sort of general rock bands and blues and is, is there that much crossover so only some you know you might see Kring, king crimson has sort of a crossover audience sometimes in those european festivals yeah, but they but don't king crimson is like they're sui generis. I never really, back in the day, I never considered them to be prog rock. And also, they, they are like, they're the sort of intellectual band. There's nothing to compare them to right. in terms of musicality and in terms, to, in terms of audience. Yeah. No, I think, uh, look, the prog bands that lean more metal have an easier time. They can play a metal festival. They can tour with yes. other metal bands and, and get an audience there. And that's where I think they, um, they have a chance. Uh, there are a few bands that are instrumental bands, Animals as Leaders, uh, and this guy Pliny, who's a guitar player who out of Australia that does solo stuff, who have massive audiences that headline headline shows in big theaters. I, so the audience is there. It's just trying to get that exposure. And, and some bands are having an easier time with it than others. But that's always, again, that's the challenge that's always been for bands. You just have to find a way to, to break through. Um, to continue that question about the three bands you were talking about. Yep. Um, uh, the Deer Hunter is another one that I always like to point out because I think that's just one of the greatest bands in music around today. Uh, and I think that if you are a fan of any alternative rock, uh, if you like Death Cab for Cutie or uh, Radiohead or anything like that, you will love The Deer Hunter. It's just needing a chance to listen to it. Um, the guy that does all the music and writes it, Casey Crescenzo, is a musical genius. It's a five-part album concept over five albums. He's done it over 10 years with themes in the fifth album that are that appeared in the first one with orchestras. And it's just massive i think it's amazing extra helpings of bombast there <laughs> but it's but it's i mean there's four minute pop songs on it it's all over the sure. place and wow. and so i 
think anyone just needs to listen to that. It, it's just amazing. I don't know why that band's not huge. That That is one that I can't figure out. Um, but another band is uh, that maybe your audience isn't aware of, but that actually doing really good business in in the UK, especially is Big Big Train. I was just gonna I was just gonna mention them. I got notes here. Big Big Train, the Underfall Yard, great track. That's an amazing song. Twenty three minutes. Definitely, there's some suppers ready there. There's some. Oh yeah. There's some close to the edge, but I really like that one. Well, I, that's an album. Uh, so that's an al- That's a band. Sorry, with a long history over 20 years. But with 2009, they put out the Underfall Yard, and that's the change in the band where they got their new singer David Longden, who is one of the best voices today. Uh, he actually missed out on being the replacement for Phil Collins on the Calling All Stations record. He he does have a sort of Peter Gabriel sound to his voice. Yeah. And and that was what immediately gave me the supper's ready thing. And they do a lot of acoustic guitar interplay with yeah. And so yeah. But um, since then, uh, they've put out four or five albums, one after the other. Has just continually gotten better. They've they are debuting on the album charts in the UK. Their live album they just put out debuted at number two, I think, on the rock charts over there. Um, they're really building a nice audience, and it's just the most beautiful music. It's um. It's very classic Genesis era, done with a modern twist. They have about seven, eight members in the band. Um, just beautiful. Just amazing, amazing orchestral, awesome stuff that I think is top level, uh, as good as anything that was done in the 70s. Another one that I liked, you mentioned them earlier, IQ, a track called Harvest of Souls. Well, that's the supper's ready for sure, <laughs> you know. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not just focusing on the longer tracks, but uh, these were just ones that stood out to me as I was listening. Yeah. And I, and I guess in some ways, my familiarity with that music from the 70s makes me more receptive to music that emulates that. Yeah. IQ, again, was a band that started in early you 80s. They started they've in the 80s, around, yeah. They've been around a long time and had a, a, a few bigger records in the 80s. Um, I didn't discover them actually until maybe 10 years ago personally, because in the U.S., they just no one knows them at all. Um, and so part of my research for the book was, well, I, I know IQ needs to be in here. I've, I've got to go back and, and review some of these IQ albums and, and figure out which one to put in. Um, and Harvest of Souls is just one of my favorite songs by them. One of the albums that your book turned me on, one of the bands that your book turned me on to was uh, Thank You, Scientists. Yeah, amazing. They, use, uh, they not only have a traditional rock rhythm section, but they also utilize violin and two sax players. And you've got the early King Crimson sort of sound in there. You've got bebop in there. They actually, you know, have jazz influence like any decent prog rock band, in my opinion, should have. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, and they're very clean, very modern. I think you said, I think you compared them, they have a bit of Michael Jackson. I was thinking Michael Jackson and Mogul Thrash. They have a... You know, they're just... Yeah, well, the singer has a very poppy yes. voice. And, and and they have a lot of pop choruses and stuff. And, and it's very danceable in, in some... Very accessible. and that, But then they'll throw in these ridiculous, crazy time signature guitar solos and uh, and make it into a 10-minute song. And you almost it's almost like Whiplash. Uh, but they're they're great. And one of the... Just a tremendous live, live band, if you get to see them. They're a lot of fun. Um, and Tom Monda, who's the, the leader of the group and the guitar player, I mean, he's one of the greatest guitar players you'll ever see. And no one knows. He plays most of the stuff you hear on a fretless guitar, which is mind blowing. Wow. As someone who's played guitar for 40 years, not with any serious amount of skill, 
and has also played viola de gamba, I know how difficult that must be. As we used to say in high school, what balls he has. Um, <laughs> Indeed. That's quite daring. Yeah. Do, do any of these bands play the Chapman stick? Uh, well, a uh, couple of players that are, are members of, of, I guess, solo acts that I know of. Nick Beggs, who plays with Stephen Wilson. Uh, he plays Chapman stick a lot. Um, he was a funny story about him. If many people don't know, was that he was in the band Kajagugu in the '80s, and was on their big hits and and one of the members. So, uh, and then found himself all of a sudden evolving into this in-demand session prog bassist and uh, tremendous musician. He plays with uh, Steve Hackett. He plays with a lot of different people, and he has his own band called the Mute Gods which um, is really cool. Now that I think about it, there is a very prominent bass playing in that Too Shy Kajagugu song. Yeah, that old 80s stuff that's, had, a, had pretty good bass, the bass players back then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess Tony Levin is the other one who's on some, some liquid tension. Well, yeah, everyone, that's the thing. So back, back in the day, it was always the sort of bonus to have someone playing a strange musician, whether it was Tony Levin on the stick or Ian Anderson on flute or Mel Collins on sax. But I don't hear that too much in, in the new prog stuff that I've been listening to. I, I've heard flute a couple times, maybe violin once, but not a lot. You, you wouldn't really hear a Chapman stick. It's more when you see the band and you see the guy standing there. I remember seeing Peter Gabriel in 82 or 83 I don't know if you know the Woman Skating Rink in Central Park where they would have this festival in the summer. They'd have like three concerts every year. And the band came in from the back and walked down the center aisle all playing their stuff. This was the early days of radio transmission for guitars. And they just walked through and, you know, he's playing his thing and 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 Gabriel's singing in the microphone and whoever was playing the sax and all. So that, that kind of instrument kind of stood out. You know, it would be the way Steve Howe would play his one or two acoustic guitar pieces in a, in a Yes concert. But, you know, it, it's not so much the crazy instruments anymore. It's again, it goes back to just the mentality and, and the uh, the songwriting approach and the and the risk taking that all these bands do. Uh, you know, Neil Morris band is, is another great band. Neil Morris is, was in the band Spock's Beard. He's been around for 25 years. One of the most prolific people ever. He's in multiple bands. He puts out two albums a year and uh, has a big, big fan base. Again, one of the main names in, in the book. Um, he pops up a lot. And uh, they just did a double CD concept album in, in 2016. I think it's the last main chapter in, the, in my book, The Similitude of a Dream, which has dozens of different genres and styles and has the whole, you know, story and uh, involved in the whole thing and different characters. And it's phenomenal. He's another one that has done a lot to further the genre over the last 20, 25 years. So how much overlap is there between prog rock and other types of music? And there's one song that I heard that I really liked by Anathema called Untouchable. Yeah, it's and, beautiful, yeah. You know, it, it made me think of that sort of early New Order driving dance music. It didn't sound like prog rock. It didn't sound like Genesis. Well, that's what I was talking about before, which was a lot of these bands... They, they get the prog rock label because there's nowhere else for them to really go anymore. And Anathema is a perfect example. They don't even like the label prog rock, but they win prog album of the year at the prog awards because that audience understands them and likes what they're doing. But they don't even want the label. They see themselves in a, as a regular alternative rock band. I mean, they don't have any solos. They don't do 30-minute songs. Right. You know, it's just well, great. Well, this was like... There was two parts to this song. It's like 12 minutes each. So it is kind of long. Right. 
But they split it into two rather than saying it's it's 20 minutes because that supper's ready length. Yeah, no, but it, but, you know, they're not metal. They, you know, they, they yeah. just have their own style, their own thing. It's very anthemic. And, uh, and they're on that K-Scope label that I was referring to. So uh, they're a perfect example of, uh, you know, you a lot of these people that like this music today, like Dream Theater and like Anathema. And the two have nothing to do with each other whatsoever. Yeah, but I wouldn't see them as different as say, Genesis and Def Leppard, or Journey and Def Leppard. To me, again, with my musical experience of several decades, listening to the two of those in, in a playlist doesn't surprise me, whereas Journey and Def Leppard would a bit. You know what's funny for me about Def Leppard is that I was a big, big Def Leppard fan, and I still am to this day, even with all my prog you know, involvement. But to me, I always thought they had a lot of prog moments in there. I liked all their other songs, and I actually talk about this in the book, I like Def Leppard for all the stuff that was not on the radio. If you take away all the singles, they had a lot of hard rock stuff, solos, longer songs, you know, big endings on a lot of things. The production was epic, like you would hear on a Yes album. And so I, that's what appealed to me. I could, I could care less about Pour Some Sugar on Me and, and Love Bites. I don't even listen to those songs. So to me, it was all one and the same. It was just big rock production music. So how did you get into prog rock? You're visibly younger than us. You grew up in a time where MTV already existed, and yet you got into a genre that is, at best, confidential, at least back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I liked music. I always liked music that had a little bit more to it. I, I, I grew up in the hair metal era, but I only liked maybe three or four of the bands, and they were the bands that had good musicians and good playing. I didn't like Trickster. I liked Def Leppard and winger who winger is made up of dixie dregs members and like that's a good band um i liked genesis i liked yes and and so when the 90s came along and people were trying to sell me on grunge and nirvana i just couldn't handle it i thankfully i discovered images and words and that saved my musical life i guess because here was a band that did everything that i liked and i could listen to and and gave me something else to to listen to i just I've, I'm an active music fan. I've, I've been with record labels and, I, and I've had fortune to discover a lot of bands that way. But I liked bands that were interesting. And over the last 20 years, I've become a fan of bands like Porcupine Tree and Big Big Train and Neil Morris and Spock's Beard. And that stuff's out there. I'm maybe a rare case in that I search that stuff out and I try to find it. And then I tell all my friends about it. That's what I've that's how I've always lived. Yeah, you're you're the guy who tells all the friends who's got the record collection. You people go over to your house because you've got the record collection. Yeah, and yeah. I, I was making the discs and handing them out. And, and I, I knew one of you, one, you of, one of you guys back in the '80s as well. You're in Florida right now, but you don't have a Florida accent. There's an accent that was. <laughs> I didn't know of a Florida accent. Where you did you grow up in Florida? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I've been here my whole life. And what what was the live music scene like back then? See, I grew up in New York, so. Madison Square Garden was like one of my second homes, the Palladium, places like that. We got all the bands. Did you get any of these bands you like live back then? No, growing up, the big bands came down, you know, the Journeys and Def Leppards, I guess we'll refer to, and, and whoever was big at the time. Yeah, we got the big bands down here because Miami, Fort Lauderdale is pretty, you know, true, big, okay. big size place. I, actually, more recently, uh, or 2000 and so on, rock music has become more scarce here. Um, you, you know, the bands will 
maybe come down to Atlanta. Maybe if they're lucky, they'll squeeze into Orlando because it's right on the right. They can not have to go too far south and and they don't hit. Um, they don't bother to come down all the way down to, to South Florida as much. Um, we get we get more now. It's starting to turn back around. Um, Stephen Wilson is coming down here again. He's doing two shows in Fort Lauderdale in, in, in December. Uh, Haken's coming down here, so it's starting to turn around a little bit. But there was it was a it was a, it was scarce for a while there. So what's the future of prog rock? I know that's a, a dumb question in many ways, but <laughs> but you're seeing you're seeing what's been around for decades, and you're seeing what's coming out, and you're seeing what's trending. What what is trending? What do you think is going to be ten years, fifteen years? What do you think? Is it going to be the same bands like the Rolling Stones who just keep playing their old? greatest hits you know until they're old and and i could have said the same bands like many of the 70s prog rock bands that are doing just that well prog rock is in a is in a bit of a turning point yeah because a lot of the bands that are the big ones they're the old bands they are going to eventually go away yes it's still touring but how much longer can can that be so um you know that that's going to be something that we have to find a way to transition the 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 labels the the websites like myself uh, wherever else need to continue to push you know the hakens the deer hunters the the thank you scientists and and start building uh new new bands that can carry over the next wave of bands and and build them up but i think that you're seeing a change in rock music. There's a few bands that are popping up in the mainstream, the you know bands like The Struts and Greta Van Fleet and uh, bands that are starting to make waves in regular rock and hopefully that'll open the door for a few of these prog rock bands to to kind of sneak in. That that would be the hope that there's an overall shift. If there's an overall shift, I think that might help the the prog scene. What what are the demographics like at these concerts? I imagine that at a Yes concert it's people sort of my age and Doug's age you know, people who were around back then. Are you getting younger people at those concerts? And are those older people going to the concerts of the newer bands? Uh, well, you will see, uh, I guess, older gentlemen, we'll call them, uh, at a Stephen Wilson or thank you. They, they appreciate that. If they found out about those bands, they appreciate that stuff because they know what it right. is because they grew up with the good stuff. So uh, you will see that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've been to ARW. I've been to the Yes shows over the years. I don't know that I see too many young people at those. Yeah. Um, necessarily, because Yes is a unique animal. But um, yeah, you, you you definitely the older older fans appreciate some of these newer bands for sure. Um, I, I'd like to see more Yes fans appreciate newer prog. That's the only thing that happens a lot. Is is uh, even with my book, it might be like, well, that's all fine and good, but it was really only good in the 70s. Hey, listen, yep. no one's arguing that. That stuff was great. It's classic. It's the all-time, uh, you know, early Genesis. It's is the Mozart and the Bach absolutely. of progressive rock. And, and, and no, there's, you're not going to find a better song than Supper's Ready or Close to the Edge. That's fine. But in my book, I decided to not cover those bands because that's the goal. Let's 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 keep this thing going. There's a lot of great music here. Be open to it. Doesn't mean you have to stop listening to Yes. It can only just add to it. And we want to keep this music going. I've, I, I love this music. I think it's as good as anything I ever listened to. And I, that, that's why I, I want people to, li- to read the book. And if they haven't heard some of these bands or listened to some of them, just check some of it out. I think it's really great stuff. Okay, this has been wonderful, Roy. Thank you very much. I strongly recommend Roy's book, Essential Modern Progressive Rock Albums. I know that for Doug and I, it has really opened our ears to a lot of music that we didn't know about and that we're definitely going to be listening to really um, in the future. 
And and I was skeptical when I got the book. I was thinking, well, okay, <laughs> the, all this new stuff, but it, it's not yes, and it's not you know Pink Floyd, but there's lots of good stuff. So uh, again, check out the Prog Report website, check out the book, and check out the playlists that are in the show notes so you can try out some of this music. Roy, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, guys. It's a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Now it is time to present our next tracks. Kirk, what do you got? So for this week's next track, I needed to find some progressive rock. But this is a band that isn't generally considered to be prog rock. It's Bebop Deluxe. They had a short career, four or five albums in the 70s, um, until the leader of the band had a falling out with his record label and said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go solo. Um, Bill Nelson, who is guitarist and songwriter and singer, has since released probably 100 records, and I buy five or six of his records every year. He's incredibly prolific. The first record that I think I heard of theirs was Live in the Air Age, which is a live album. This came out in 1977, and it was an interesting album. It was a two-record album. It was one LP and one 12-inch single. So there were two long songs, Shine and Adventures in a Yorkshire Landscape, which are on the 12-inch. They're eight and nine minutes long, and the rest was on the, the single LP. It's rock, it's heavy metal from the early mid-70s, it's glam rock, it's, there's always this science fiction thing going on in his music, and even to this day, but it was way ahead of its time, and it didn't last long. So the funny thing is that in, in the show earlier, we were talking about Journey and Def Leppard being on the same bill. When I saw Bebop Deluxe, they were opening for, you ready for this? Leonard Skinnerd of all things, at the Palladium in New York. It's like... Bebop, and I went to see Bebop Deluxe. I didn't go to see Leonard Skinner because, you know, how many times you want to hear Freebird, right? And I kind of regret that Bebop Deluxe didn't continue, but Bill Nelson does have an extraordinary solo career. Maybe I'll talk about him in a future episode. So Live in the Air Age by Bebop Deluxe. Doug, what about you? That is a great record. I wish I had picked it. I am picking something that I, I've actually, I mentioned in the show, and I, I, I kind of did want to go back and kind of, uh, as sort of an epilogue to the show, say that, as, as Kirk mentioned I don't think either of us expected that we would enjoy as much of the modern prog rock that has been suggested by, by Roy and other people as we have. And delightful isn't a word that I would normally associate with prog rock, but I was delighted by this album by Thank You Scientist. It's called Stranger Heads Prevail. It came out in 2016. As I mentioned, as far as like instrumentation, they have fairly standard stuff with the addition of sax and, and violin and theremin i think the theremin is coming back it was a couple of months ago i mentioned another band that used the theremin but the instrumentation of the band isn't what draws me to them they just have a very clever way of, of creating music just like the music that i listened to 30 years ago i definitely recommend it and i and i definitely recommend that you explore some of the music in the playlist that we'll post if only to assure yourself that there is good sophisticated uh, and appealing music out there if you can only find it. And sometimes I do feel like I went to sleep and woke up 20 years later and I, I just don't know where to find any of this stuff. But this is a good place to start. Again, Kirk and I found a number of bands here that are definitely worth investigating. The one for me right now, Thank You Scientist, Stranger Heads Prevail, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.